Do Worcester colleges have the cultural relevance of an Applebee's? It's May the 1st, 2018, and this is 508, a show about Worcester. Our panel today is Brendan Mellican and me, Mike Benedetti. Today we're talking about summer, the council agenda, transit probably. I don't know. We're not going to talk about the Avengers. Can we talk about the uh, cow that's standing next to me? We have a giant dog on the show today. Hey, Jackson. Worcester's only... Worcester's only Good public boy. affairs show with the courage to have Steve Quist dog. We couldn't have a, a, a coyote on here to attack us, uh, so we decided we would have a giant dog on here to, I guess, lick your hand. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's kind of the same. You know, Brendan, Brent, Brent crude oil is $74 a barrel, down 1% on the week. Bitcoin is $8,900, down 7% this week. You're listening to Unity Radio, broadcasting with 100,000 milliwatts of power on 102.9 FM and streaming at WorcesterMag.com. The show is also cablecast on WCCA-TV 194, podcasted at pieandcoffee.org, and live streamed to our Facebook page, though not today. You can call in live at 508-471-5265, and thanks to the mighty Hank Stoltz for engineering today's show. Actually, Mike, if you can hear that noise in the background, uh, Jackson just ate Hank. The dog is the dog is eating something on the ground. Brendan. Mike. Is, is it summertime in Worcester? No, that's uh, June 22nd, I believe. But the college kids are like out going oh, away. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, they're 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 soon. Yeah, I think WPI like wraps up those... like this week. Uh, most of the rest of the colleges over the course of the next month. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's like our our, our unofficial summer, our spiritual summer. I, per, personally, I think it's actually when the public schools are out because that's when the school buses are off the street and you typically gain like a half hour uh, in your commute, no matter where you're going. So a long time ago, Steve Siddle said something which I thought was maybe not totally accurate, but kind of hilarious, that he thought that the colleges in Worcester had the cultural relevance of an Applebee's. Yeah. And I don't know, over the years, there's been some years when I agreed with, with that and some years when I didn't, but I think it's interesting framing. Yeah, no, and it, I think, you know, that that's going back some time that Steve, who has a fantastic knack for words, um, made that comment. And I think it was probably true at the time. Uh, but it, like all things, that changes. I mean, you and I have talked about this quite a bit on the show over the years. It used to be like Clark was uh, – if you met somebody new in Worcester that wasn't from Worcester, chances are they were a Clarky, right? Like right. the retention rate is just absurd uh, in, in, in a fantastic way, uh, the way that Clark University manages to introduce students to the city. But that's changed a lot with other schools as well. Like now I'm starting to find more Holy Cross students uh, that I'm meeting that are becoming lifers here or at least uh, setting up some degree of, of huh. roots and whatnot. And that seems to line up pretty directly with um, uh, the time that uh, City Manager Augustus did up at the, the school uh, in the Public Affairs Department up there yeah. and helped uh, hash out a lot of the differences the school had with the city or that the city really had with the school in terms of resident-student uh, relations and whatnot. It used to be, though, that those, the colleges didn't have a big impact on, on the city. Now I think they have a pretty significant impact, uh, and not just in a seasonal way where you might see as a business owner a lift, um, but a definite influx of new ideas, um, new people, and people from wildly different backgrounds than New England uh, coming into the city and spending a fair amount of time here beyond the four years that they might spend for school. You know, the um, the Worcester Vegetarian Festival, I guess I should say the New England Vegetarian Food Festival uh, happened at the DCU Center on Sunday. Uh, it was uh, a third larger than usual physically, th- a third larger. It was a madhouse as usual, though a manageable madhouse with that extra space. You know, people were lined up for an hour and a half to buy vegan cupcakes at one booth. It was nuts. Um, Any fights over the vegan cupcakes? I, there were no fights. There were no incidents that I saw. People right. people actually, you know, it was one of these deals where if you're a member of Veg Worcester, you can go in half an hour early. Uh, or you can go in an hour early. Mm-hmm. And people were lined up half an hour early in the rain for that line. I feel like that's something that uh, Veg Worcester could teach Apple. And it's like you, you, Apple should have a membership dro- like a membership program where yeah. you can get in line. Uh, you're guaranteed like first hundred slots for an iPhone release day. I like this idea. I like this idea. But um, I was just going to say that like, I always bring up uh, Veg Worcester and the and the Veg Fest as a as a Worcester thing, which, with essentially no institutional support, has done extremely well, and sure. was which was organized I don't know ten years ago, eleven years ago Veg Worcester, and that's something which was organized by a bunch of WPI grads, Clark grads, yeah. a few Worcester people, but mostly recent college grads who have mostly recently stuck around, and mm-hmm. that's like 
you know, I mean, that's like a, that, that's a good, a great example of the college students sticking around and having a big impact. Yeah, I know, and, and that's happening everywhere. I mean, I, I just met a young man the other day, uh, a bartender in the city who's now graduated from uh, WPI, who's really just trying to figure out, like, how far he needs to move from Worcester, because he doesn't really want to, to uh, start kickstarting his uh, video game career. Hmm. And, like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the... Again, to be fair to Steve, there probably was a time, and probably the time that he wrote those words, that uh, yeah, maybe Applebee's was the appropriate comparison to uh, the college institutions in terms of their not their relevance in and of themselves, but their relevance to the city of Worcester. But I think that's starting to change quite a bit, and and a big part of it is I think Worcester folks have gotten a little bit better at being accepting of the influx of students that yes. we have to the city. I mean, yes. it, that used to be kind of like one of our evergreen stories in the city was, you know, talking about all the problems up on College Hill and, you know, that, you know, having people complaining about interacting with college students and whatnot, which is just such an absurd thing. It's it's an extension of the way we treat our uh, young public school students as feral animals. We, we, <laughs> we just... treat our college students as bizarre aliens who need to leave. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was one one of the volunteer. I, I was one of the volunteers at the Veg Fest, as I often am. It's you know, it's a great event. It's ten times more fun if you're a volunteer. Um, and one of the volunteers was a uh, a lady who. Uh, uh, just moved over from from London to Boston to go to MIT, and she was volunteering because she was trying to find vegetarian type things she could volunteer for that she could get a train to. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of them are like on farms and things, and one of them is available was near the train station, which is the Worcester Veg Fest. And she was just telling me, you know, like I'm sort of getting used to Americans, I'm sort of getting used to regional differences. And I said, like, what regions have you been in? And she said, well, really only Boston. And I was like. You know, you are living. I just want you to know, you're living in the unfriendliest part of America, which for 500 years has been known as the unfriendliest part of America. And she was like, "Really?" And I was like, "Yeah." Like New England, people in New England are like bizarrely mean, and bizarrely standoffish compared to any other part of the, the country. Um, and so maybe this is just our New Englandness in Worcester kind of mellowing a little bit with the years so that we're no longer bizarrely as as bizarrely mean to the college students as we used to be. See, I just I, I disagree with that. I know you disagree with that because you're from this area. Yeah, no, it's because, and, I, it's because I've traveled enough to realize that the rest of you are all frauds. You're pretending to be nice and you're pretending to be happy. We're just honest up here. We're it's just not walk, honesty. We're just walking around being like our normal salty selves and people we're happy in, to share that with people you. People in Worcester are sort of nice actually. I think they just don't act nice. And people everywhere else are probably no nicer but they definitely act nicer and it's like why not? I mean, this is just yeah, they like just wait till you're gone. You they say terrible things about you. This just this to me is like people who decide that they're not going to shower because it's like inauthentic or something. And it's like you might as, it's like what am I putting up a front? Like I don't have sweat. It's like no, you're just showering because it was smell bad. You so, could be nice and not be a fraud. I, I I've got some family down south that yeah. have always framed this for me really, and I I think really nicely that. The reason what we consider Southern hospitality up in in the Northeast, what that all those invites to like somebody's a stranger's house for dinner or like to a church or to like a party or whatnot. It's all in the ambush. It's a trap. No, it's not. It's not a trap. It's just to feel you out to make sure that you're not planning on moving there. Oh, and that's okay. that's the difference between like if 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 you're just a guest and you're just visiting, you can just be a Yankee, and we can say that in like in a in a sort of a, a funny sort of way. As soon as somebody gets the sense that you're moving there, then you're a damn Yankee, and you, those invites dry up. Right Right away. And I hear that. I that's, hear I that. think that that's yeah. The friendliness, man. That's it's a fraud down there. Uh, you know, uh, again. But the, as someone from London, they should know better, Mike. I mean, you, you go to Boston. The Boston, our our Massachusetts Boston accent, that is that's the traditional uh, British accent. It's the British accent accent has shifted more since the Revolution than the Boston accent has. I tell you, the London accent is a great uh, great accent. I don't realize from BBC, the BBC, watching the BBC, but hearing it in person, my favorite my favorite English accent. Uh, you got a 137 pound dog just a uh, just dog. If you hear studio. banging stuff in the background, this is Q's dog running hey around this room, this basement in Worcester. Yeah. Well, let the people uh, watch it, Mike. You keep talking. I'm gonna all right. Come over here, Dad. So there's actually been a number of really good reports on transit recently that I want to talk about. Uh, you know, speaking of how far does somebody have to move from Worcester to get their video game career off the ground, it's similar to the question of how far do I need to move from Boston to like have an affordable place where I can raise my children and not feel like I'm living in a big city. Um, so there's been a couple of really interesting transit reports. Also, there's a city council agenda. Brendan, what would you like me to talk about first? I would like you to acknowledge the gallon of uh, dog saliva that just poured all over my shirt. All right. Well, it's been duly noted. I want to I have a quote from Dan Dick to start us off. We have three crops in New England, trees, rocks, and water. Tonight at the city council meeting, the council will elect the city clerk to a two-year term. I don't know anything about this. Is this how it works with the city clerk? 
Maybe we just didn't notice when Rushford was here. This is on the. Uh, this is on the agenda that we're going to elect the city clerk to a two-year There's people term. in the room. Have we done this ever yeah, in the past? I've never heard of the. Uh, never heard of it's yeah. on. The, I mean, maybe I'm misinterpreting the agenda item. It's very confusing. Um, this is why, again, I should write this agenda earlier than I do and like call somebody and ask them this question. There's going to be an executive session tonight for the council to discuss a property deal, having been advised by the city manager that a public discussion will have a detrimental effect on the city's negotiation position. Do we have any idea what this is? No. For the pot, you think it's POSOX related? It kind of. I mean, uh, we have to. What other big land deals are going on in the city? It, that it doesn't have to. <laughs> it could be anything. Uh, there's State Rep. Kate Campanell, Tatnick Brook Watershed Association President John Reed, and our fan of friend of the show John Stewart have a citizen petition to rename the Coes Reservoir Dam and Bridge the Dan Dick Bridge and Dam after the late great Worcester environmentalist. It's been pointed out to me by old friends of Dan, the late Dan Dick that he probably would have preferred it to be called the Damn Dan Dick Bridge and Dam. Well, you know, I'm glad you made that joke for me. Can you say that? Uh, I just want you to read it three times as fast as you can. <laughs> Dan Dick Bridge and Dam. Dan Dick Bridge and Dam. Yeah, see, this is... <clears throat> I, I, we have some rel relatively very... I don't know relatively... Very intelligent politicians behind this. Mm -hmm. And nobody in the room just sat down and looked at all of those Ds and said, wait a second, no, this is not a pronounceable uh, a pronounceable name. This is We need to come up with something better. It should be the Daniel E. Dick Bridge and Dam. Just, yeah. I think that needs to be uh, pushed off for a week or two till we can uh, tweak it a little bit. The mayor, the mayor is celebrating May Day by calling for a stronger ordinance against not paying workers, aka well, for all their work, aka wage theft. Councilor Rivera is celebrating May Day by asking the city manager for a study on hiring disparities for public construction projects, including race, gender, residency, and veterans. The mayor would like to know if we can have a process for interviewing companies leaving the city, and Councilor Toomey would like to have a report on the turnover for city employees. Mike, I sent you something I think yesterday. Uh, related to that last item. Yeah, I, I didn't read that. You didn't read it? No? no. Okay. Well, so here's the thing that I and I'm really curious. I'm actually really, really curious to see where uh, Councilor Toomey is going to go with that item, right? Because the way it, I read it, I'm like, well, do they think that we should have longer uh, tenure for city employees? I can think of so many people that are in City Hall that you wonder when you see them there, like, why didn't you retire 20 years ago? Or like, why didn't you leave three administrations back? Like, the average lifespan for an American worker now in any career field, is, uh -huh. the average is four years. Okay. And I, I, I can't think of many people that are, are drawing that number down inside City Hall. So that, that's the one item of all the, all the ones that they have up tonight that I'm really curious to see where it goes. What this, yeah, this is, I mean, this is, I feel like this is something which is generally true about these, or often true about these city council agenda items, which is that they have no context as printed <laughs> oh. in the agenda. You know, it'll just be like, I would like a report on, on uh, you know, whether Worcester's good or bad. And you're like, well, does this councilor think Worcester's good or bad? Like, what does this agenda item mean? Well, that's not true. The one that I am really interested in was held from last week, and it's to figure out the uh, the $8 million math, the $8 million well, question. This is three things from last week that I'm going to bring up again because I, I kind of like them all. Uh, these were not discussed last week, so they're going to be held over to this week. Councillor Rosen wants to report on how much taxpayers will save if we put the $8 million expansion and renovation of the main library on hold. I'm still saying it's $8 million, you're Mike. You're going to <laughs> Uh, Councilors Russell and also now Councilor Rivera would like to know if we can let landlords with RG5 zoned apartments apply for a special permit to allow more than three unrelated persons to live in a unit. And Councilor Rose would like us to have a mile-long trolley or streetcar system, which might just be making a bus look like a trolley and not making there actually be train tracks. I loved that idea so much on first pass, but the more you hear about it, it is kind of ridiculous. We need to have a do a bunch of stuff like this. We need to have a bus that looks like a spaceship. We need to have a bus that looks like Abby Hoffman. We need a bus that looks like a juggalo. A carousel would be really nice for the kids. That's probably a great way to introduce uh, more youth uh, to the WRTA. We'll just have like you know the little horses and. People do this with their bus systems, right? They have goofy design things. Well, we have I, the one cool bus that we have is uh, mostly parked. The library bus just got a, a oh yeah key detail came back up from a powwow and did that. Awesome, awesome. Um, I don't know how we're doing. How how what does our timing look like today, Hank Stoltz? Uh, we can break any time you wish. We can break any. So let's 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 um, let's kind of ease into this next topic a little bit, um, which is tr which is uh, transportation. We've been talking about transportation a lot. You know, we're we're gonna have a. a the WRTA passed a budget this week, which is not a full year budget, and so will not, uh, you know, involves them money, running out of money before the end of the year. Uh, the WRTA um, also said that they would like to see if they could create a penny gas tax. 
which I guess would be in the whole catchment area of the WRTA to help fund the bus. Um, yeah, so like uh, this 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 bus problem has still not been solved, Brenda Milligan. It has not, but it, I'm just listening to the, you know, some of the solutions that. So you're going to have a penny tax, a gas tax in, in the year that gas prices are predicted to be the highest in four years, right? Like, do, do the folks that are actually coming up with these ideas uh, actually look in the mirror and, like, recite them, uh, talk them through even to themselves before they bring bring them to a wider audience? It just There's so many solutions to the problems. I think we discuss them every week with the RTA, the WRTA, uh, and the, the RTA system as, as a whole, but we're not really touching on any of them. The only thing that's being discussed is the immediate problem, which is a real problem that involves money, but not actually getting into the weeds on any of the solutions to actually uh, even test the waters to see if, if it's it's possible to increase revenue from year to year. Well, I want to get into some possible solutions here after the break. This is 508 Worcester's Transit Advocacy Voice. We'll be back in just a second. So, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, you know, like, yeah, there's a giant slab of, uh, of animal products here that the dog wants to play with. Yeah, I think feed it the back. That's, uh, that's, and that's really the yeah. only reason I didn't. I reached in there and I felt like that was a murder scene. So I, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> you can get animal wants to have something on this guy. Going right from uh, New England Veg Fest into me reaching into a bag blindly and pulling out half of an animal, I just didn't like think this it would look tasty. Did you see this report? Um, no, I actually didn't see this one. This is this is interesting. This is from Mass Inc., which I don't know what Mass Inc. is. Do people at home uh, get to watch me run this real fast? While, uh, yeah. I mean, the interesting, one of the key interesting things here is that Worcester, most of these areas, uh, really nobody wants to live. This is about transit-oriented development. Transit-oriented development basically meaning doing stuff within um, half a mile of a train station. Um, and like Worcester is one of the only cities on their list with actually economically in striking distance of this making sense. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else the risk near the transition was so low that nobody would ever want to build the bus. Yes. So Worcester is actually right there. But I think that the idea in here is what's interesting though, and again, something we've talked about for years, and this I think it's important to kind of separate a little bit from the, uh, take care brother. Jackson, good seeing you. Um, the, uh, is a little bit different than what we're talking about oftentimes or lately with the WRTA, uh, the more regional system, or, or you know the, the statewide system and how that ties into uh, a national system. Or whatnot. Ten seconds. Okay. We have a caller. Nice. As well. Is this going to be disappointing, Mike? What? Is this call going to be disappointing? No, it'll be great call. <laughs> caller, don't go away. Thrill of a lifetime. Get your tickets and come in. Killers of the Amazon can devour a cow in a matter of seconds, can leave nothing but the bare bones. First time shown in your city and you may never have the chance to see it again. Alive, 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 the deadly piranhas. The most terrifying flesh eaters from the deep. Brendan Mellican and Mike Benedetti on 508, your voice of transit advocacy and progressive political thought. Mike, I think I'm going to uh, need to go home and take a shower. I am completely sopping wet with uh, Great Dane saliva. The dog, the dog is out of the studio. Do we have a call? Okay, this is always a mistake, but we're going to do it. <laughs> alive, 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 the deadly piranhas. The most uh, terrifying yeah, flesh can, eaters from the deep. I think we can let that you one know, go, Hank. This is literally somebody playing back the show to us on like a 30-second delay. You sound fantastic, though. I don't know. Um, so this is a report called The Promise. There's two reports I have here. One is called The Promise and Potential of Transformative Transit-Oriented Development in Gateway, in Gateway Cities. This is from Mass Inc. Um, and this is an interesting report. It's looking, at, it's looking at Gateway Cities. It's looking at four in particular, including Worcester. But Gateway Cities are, I guess, cities in Massachusetts that are not Greater Boston. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind a of a, it's a it's become a useful term, but it is kind of a funny term because it really seems to be almost a catch-all for uh, struggling economically, uh, might might not might not have the healthiest housing markets, might yes. have stronger uh, bigger issues with uh, poverty and uh, public school education and whatnot, and then 
the big one, you're not Boston. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like at-risk youth, and that at first it sounds like a polite way of talking about whatever you're talking about, and eventually it just comes to refer to, like, uh, you know, boys of color. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so in this report, they're talking about the gateway cities. They're talking about transit-oriented development. This is building, um, this is doing development within half a mile of the train station. So half a mile of the train station in Worcester is like Green Island, up to Columbus Park on Shrewsbury Street, a little bit over to the other side of Main Street. That's sure. a half a mile from the train. Uh, and they found a couple things about this whole idea. The first of all is that they talk about how it needs to be economically viable to actually do any of these plans around transit-oriented development. And they also talk about how most of these cities, it's like nowhere near economically viable. Mm -hmm. That you could like run all the trains you want to Springfield, but it is not going to do uh, whatever magic you want to happen in Springfield. Worcester, interestingly enough, is the one city where rents near the train station are high enough that they say, oh, you know, you could maybe even have transit-oriented development near Worcester without forcing people to do it. People might actually build something near the train station. Um, I, can, I haven't figured out from this whether or not um, they're including like city square, city square in this. Um, they talk about how Worcester is also an outlier in that about 30% of the um, transit-oriented development area of Worcester is like unbuilt, mm -hmm. is like whatever parking lots and vacant lots. Um, this is, which I guess I guess that makes sense. I don't know. It's well, because we're still still very much a, a car-driven culture in Worcester. So yeah, I mean, the, and Boston was the same way up until about 10 years ago, right? I mean, the seaport now, if you haven't been in Boston in a decade, and you uh, you took the silver line out of uh, Logan uh, into the middle of the seaport, you'd think you were walking out into the strip in Vegas. I mean, it's ridiculous how much development in the course of a decade went from surface lots to some of the largest and priciest uh, buildings in the city. So I, mean, I, I think in a way that that's kind of what the, the surface lots, they serve that function. It's almost like the placeholder, right? Until uh, development kicks up to the point where it's worth uh, buying those dense urban parcels and building them up. Ours are, I think, still indicative of the fact that we're not really ready to grow past uh, a car culture. But that's just a part of this bigger conversation, right? The car culture exists and keeps growing from, I think, maybe our shared perspective keeps getting worse because there is no other system locally that's viable, right? Like you don't have the kind of bus service or cab service or, uh, you know, uh, bike share services that might allow for people to comfortably leave their car at home. Uh, and then you, because the, the that local transportation system doesn't, uh, isn't fully fleshed out, it doesn't, there's nothing to tie directly into the larger regional rail system, which I think is specifically what the study you're talking about. It, uh, it is, yeah. And I, I think that's, kind of part of the problem, right? And it's like, for years, we've allowed uh, move, well, not allowed, I mean, there's nothing you can really do to stop it ethically, but it's, we've had this sort of suburban sprawl kind of development in Worcester County and Franklin County, and even inside 128, but it's, it's so much denser, it's less noticeable, where we've had more and more people moving out to the suburbs. And then we try really, really hard to bring them back just for spending dollars and, and whatnot. And I, but I think the, the focus needs to be bringing people back into those cities, even if they're not living here, as a transportation hub. Yeah. Again, you know, in the direction of this report, it, it, it would make more sense than to have a commuter rail that stopped every town, and sometimes a couple of times in a town, on its way into Boston. And then just, instead, just have three stops, right? You have Springfield, Worcester, Boston. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it, it's interesting. They actually talk about how often the train would have to run. This has been one of my questions, which is like, how often would the train have to run for any of these utopian projects to work out? Would there have to be a train to Boston every 10 minutes? The answer is no. Um, but some of these statistics are kind of blowing my mind. They're, they have a, a metric of optimal development, they call it, where, which isn't to say like, okay, what's the, how can we build just like a bunch of 100-story buildings near Union Station? It's saying, okay, like what's kind of like a high density area near Union Station in Worcester? And what if we just upgraded like a lot of the stuff around Union Station to like that density? So building those 30% unbuilt parcels, mm -hmm. filling the vacant floors of buildings, you know, building, replacing one story units that are older with multiple story units that are newer. You know, a reasonable non-utopian idea, but just a kind of like, what if, you know, somebody wanted to put a trillion dollars into developing that area? without completely going crazy and having multiple story skyscrapers like how much people how much could you build near within half a mile of union station the answer is they say that you could add, it could add 
uh, 10 million square feet of development, 23,505 more residents, and about se only about 7,000 additional jobs. Most of the most of the other cities they looked at would involve adding a lot of jobs near the train. In Worcester, for some reason, their metric doesn't have that. But they t they're talking about 10 million square feet of development. Um, as a comparison, the glass uh, the glass tower on Main Street across mm -hmm. from City Hall, the Worcester Plaza Tower, is a quarter million square feet. Oh, wow. So we're talking about 40 of those within half a mile of Union Station or whatever, 80 buildings that are half that size or 160 buildings that are a quarter that size. So you're telling me that there is some potential for some time in my lifetime for Worcester to actually have a skyline. Well, the nice thing is, I mean, we're, the nice thing is we're actually doing a lot of this. Like, I mean, um, right? I mean, we're like, we are, we're doing this. Like one of the big unbuilt par parcels near Union Station is City Square, which mm -hmm. is coming online right now. Yeah. You know, we've just had uh, uh, Brad Wyatt's building, you know, got turned into apartments. Yep. The, the, these kind of projects are actually happening. Um, you know, like how much this, how much this ends up like affecting people. I mean, they do, they do talk about like, uh, you know, people who are medium and low income and their access to the train in here, um, and how the train just needs to be cheaper because it needs to be, uh, more accessible to those folks as well. But anyway, they're, they're talking about, you know, putting all these people there, assuming that a lot of them are going to work in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to get the number of people commuting into Boston much higher. They're thinking about like a 30% increase in trains, in train frequency, and which that's, is not bad. No, it seems perfectly reasonable, and even more so if you're getting rid of, well, if you're talking express trains, right? Like you're not, you're getting rid of some of those uh, superfluous stops along the way. Yeah. You know, which keeps the speed of the trains down uh, and limits the amount of uh, number of trains that you can actually have running because. They're slowed down. They're they're naturally slowed down by the number of commuter rail stops that they have to make along the way. I think we need to take another com another commercial break, but we'll be back to talk more about some white paper here on 508 Worcester's Libertarian Voice. <coughs> you know, that's a yeah. And, and some of that seems like some interesting cart and horse stuff too. Like, I mean, yeah. You know, studying something that doesn't necessarily exist, trying to find like what the the predictor of, of it being a viable development project. I mean, I know it can be done, but you know, like we're seeing some pretty significant growth. At least you can see it in um, the housing market side of things, right? Uh, the value of homes over in the Burncoat area uh, has risen uh, faster than the homes, say, over in 01602 or over in 609 right. on the, the west side of the city. Uh, very similar style of homes, very similar neighborhoods. There isn't much to really differentiate one for, from the other, other than you know one neighborhood was more decimated from Asian Longhorn Beetles than the other. But, but the big difference is uh, the Burncoat side of the city has much better highway access. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's something, a problem I, I feel like it's either I don't understand what's trying to be accomplished or what I think is more correct is that some of the views uh, that, that are taken in, in a lot of these reports are so linear. Like today we're talking about the relationship of train and uh, square footage of housing and density right. of housing. Well, you can't really account for the potential of potential train riders until you've accounted for all of the folks uh, who are currently driving into a given area and doing so because the service that they might like to be taking, the train service, isn't satisfactory. Um, so it's easier to move, whatever, a half hour closer to uh, the Mass Pike and buy a house than it is to even think about going downtown because you never know when the train's going to come anyways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we need to talk also about how people don't like mass transit. Um, are we about ready? Are we ready to come back in? Thirty-five seconds. Thirty-five seconds. People at home. People uh, don't like mass transit, huh? You know, people. I mean, like, a, I mean, the reason that people used to we used to have all these subways stretching across America is because people used to be relatively poorer. Yeah. And when people have money, they buy a car and they drive because it's like yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't buy a car and I don't drive, but I'm like a weirdo. Like, you can't assume that everybody's preference, you know, everybody's going to have, you know, it's nice that I have the freedom to do that, but you can't expect everybody to be, have that weird preference. Which is also another part of an interesting conversation that we can have on air. We can talk about self-driving cars. <laughs> This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye, and dark within. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye, and dark within. And this is Brendan Melican.
and this is Mike Benedetti, and off camera is Hank Stoltz, and this is 508, a show about Worcester, Worcester's libertarian voice. Hi, Brendan. How's it going, man? Good. We need to talk about autonomous vehicles. Before we do that, can we just point out, uh, can yeah. I point out that you're reading... Yeah. In conjunction with what Hank just picked for background music, it was super good. It was fantastic. That was like that reminded if, if we were producing eighties, uh, late eighties, early nineties anime uh, with terrible translations. That's exactly what we would have had. It's pretty good. Sorry, yeah, I'm trying good to stuff. play with the camera in the middle of the show, which is always a bad idea. No, oh, there's a whole new camera setup. I don't know how to do use it. Um, so I I feel like one of the elephants in the room. So one of the elephants in one of the not the one of the elephants in the room that we're pointing out that we always point out is that is this feeling of like well the people who are running these systems don't know what they're doing they're obviously just doing it to try to cause problems for us obviously they could run 10 more times more trains and buses they just don't want to because they're a bunch of jerks it is clearly and not that simple it's clearly <laughs> not that simple and i honestly go into all these debates assuming that we're some that because these are like professional engineering uh disciplines mm-hmm. that we're somewhere near an optimal bus bus system and an optimal train system given the constraints that we have today that part of what we're trying to think about is what are the constraints uh that could we could move or what constraints could we change so that people could find a better solution and and not that the people who are designing this don't know what they're doing you just mentioned something in the break that i'll be honest i'd never really thought about before that uh people maybe just don't like mass transit people don't like mass transit i mean this is one of the reasons that mass transit has gone down uh transit ridership has gone down a lot in the last year uh, the idea being that, w- which is that uh, uh, people just like have more money the last couple of years. Like we've sort of gotten over this recession thing and this whole generation that people thought were not buying cars because they were like these millennials who just hate cars for an inexplicable reason actually just don't have any money. And if you give them money, they buy a car. But I, even beyond that, I mean, there's something that we talk we talk about quite a bit that overlays perfectly with that. We have this notion in the United States, right, that like the middle class is some sort of uh, God-given uh, right that it just has always is, existed. It's just this it, phenomenon of nature, like the sunrise. Yeah, and we've always had a middle class, right? Like, no, we the middle class was, was really a post-World War II uh, yes. system, right? Like, yes. Prior to post-World War II, at, at varying degrees between one and two, but definitely before one, uh, you basically had rich people and not rich people, and the not rich people were varying degrees of not rich, but not nearly with the broad scale that we have now. Most of our transit systems predate the arrival of the middle class, right? Yes. So, and I think that's something that is fascinating that probably should find its way at some point in time into a white paper written by people smarter than you and I, is that like we're trying to figure out creative ways to fix systems that might just not have any practical use anymore for the majority of the population, uh, it, as long as the majority of the population still fits into the realm of middle class and can afford to buy a car and can choose their own uh, way to get around. Because really a lot of these systems were designed when the only way you were going to get around was the way that government provided for you to get around, whether that was a subway or a train or you know a horse-drawn buggy, whatever the case may be. Like you're, you're, The options weren't in your control. They were whatever was provided by a municipality or, or a larger government. I'm a big fan of the conservative economist Tyler Cowen, somebody who I frequently disagree with, but who's always very thoughtful. So I always read his blogging and stuff. Um, many of the many of the uh, studies that I read on the show, although not this one, are studies that he points out. Um, something that he's something that I saw that he wrote recently was in reference to this whole question was, have we considered that maybe mass transit is just a 20th century technology? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you're saying. Um, so this gets into the question of like self-driving cars, um, autonomous vehicles, um, which I, uh, you know, which is one of these technologies, which is still like we're like on the edge of it. It seems like we have them out in the world. We can see lots of reasons why maybe it's not going to happen, like regulatory reasons or social reasons or whatever. Mm-hmm. We also think, wow, if this happened, this would be kind of like change everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember whenever I somebody first showed me the World Wide Web back in the olden days, 1993 or something. And I looked at it and I was like, I must be misunderstanding this because it seems like if this existed, the world would completely change. Like somebody has a magic wand here that's a working magic wand. And yet we don't have like giant rainbow crystal towers everywhere. I must be misunderstanding this magic wand. And it's like, no, I wasn't misunderstanding it. I was misunderstanding how technologies take a while to roll out. And then it does change the world, of course. And simultaneously, while you were having that thought, Brian Cumble was on the Today Show uh, bemoaning the idea that anybody would ever get their news or watch a program via the World Wide Web. That was such a a, a silly concept that we should just forget about it now. 
Yeah. You know, actually, I want to talk about Walter Cronkite for a second. You know, one thing that I do whenever I'm sort of grinding through work, um, if I need to listen to something in the background, is I'll listen to old episodes of The Tonight Show on YouTube that have Charles Nelson, Charles Nelson Reilly as a guest, because he's such a great guest, Charles Nelson Reilly. And it's so nice to listen to, like, 70s episodes of The Tonight Show, because none of the pro- current affairs, none of the politics are stressful. They have nothing to do with today. Uh, you know, it's somewhat of a sexist and obnoxious show sometimes, but it's generally pretty good. I saw this one where uh, they had Walter Cronkite on there a year after after he retired. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Johnny Carson said, you know, Walter, when you were on uh, last year, like on the day of the retirement to celebrate the day of your retirement as, a, you know, America's – the dean of American newscasters, you know, you had warned that um, – like television news was becoming too powerful and that it just didn't have enough information and it was not a reasonable information source for most people, that people need to be reading books, need to be mm-hmm. reading newspapers, they need other sources of information, that TV news is not getting the job done. And he said, now that you've been retired for a year, what do you think? And he was like, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I still 100% agree with this. Like, TV news is, like, basically terrible. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to, to hear this, to, the Walter Cron- which seems so clear to me that TV news is basically terrible. Sure. But to have Walter Cronkite, like, our most famous TV newsman, the day of his retirement and I guess a year after it, being like, oh, yeah, like, <laughs> we try to do a good job, but we basically are terrible and a bad influence on society. Well, I mean, that's ultimately the story of uh, this social th- media this week. No, this weekend with the uh, White House Correspondents Dinner. Right. I mean, all, all of the uproar over uh, Michelle Wolf's uh, comedy, the things if you look at the things that everybody is honing in on as that they found personally offensive, it's when you take it from a 30,000-foot view, it becomes a little bit more clear that the thing that, that everyone in the room found personally offensive is that she was making an attack on journalism, that you know, everybody in that room likes to constantly complain about the things that one party or another party is doing, right. but simultaneously ignoring the fact that you're the only ones giving them all the attention and making all of the money off of them, that you're make, both, making all groups, including yourselves, very, very wealthy at the same time. I mean, this is, a, this, I haven't actually not, I mean, I've tried to avoid stories about this because I hate reading stories about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It's but awful, but this, the standard routine was actually great. As someone this, who loves crass humor and thinks yeah. that all humor should offend on some level, that uh, steadfast rule. All humor has to offend or it's not funny. Is, is this um, basically the yeah. same phenomenon as when Stephen Colbert did it and he like... You know, insulted President Bush a lot, but also like insulted the professional journalism a yeah. lot. And there was like no laughs in the room, and it was like a super viral video because it was super hilarious. But nobody in the room was laughing because they were like, "You can't make fun of us. Come on." One of the dirty secrets of that room, though, is is that it's it's in, always in a cavernous ballroom. Yes. And they intentionally don't mic the audience. Uh, if you if you're watching a oh, comedy okay. show on Netflix or you're watching like an old George Carlin stand-up, the audience is mic'd. Not individual. It's not like they're wearing labs, right. but like there's there's booms that are over the audience to pick up that kind, kind of like laughter. how we have a we have one mic just here in the room just to pick up sounds of dogs and things running around. Yeah, no, the exact same thing. You don't want to miss the dog, but that room isn't intentionally uh, quiet. And um, sometimes what you see on TV isn't actually what's happening in the room. So people could be booing or applauding the whole time. We don't even know. Yeah, it's only when it's big you actually hear it. But I think to your point, yes, it's the exact same thing. What was focused on and ignored were uh, not the things that should have been focused on or ignored so they talk a little bit about autonomous cars in here um and their perspective is that they think that autonomous cars may mean that there would be less congestion i remember reading a report a couple years ago from i want to say like jp morgan chase somebody there uh talking about how um the economics of a cab that 90 percent of the cost of operating a cab was the driver of the cab so that presumably when you have an autonomous vehicle, it's now only – it's now you know, a tenth as expensive to operate that cab as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so then, therefore, it would possibly make economic sense to just have a bunch of robot cars driving around aimlessly so that if somebody like – hails one on their futuristic uber or whatever you're like oh like my cab is 10 yards closer than the other company's cab like i you know mm-hmm. the person will get in my cab or if you have like delivery robots they'll just be cruising around aimlessly not aimlessly but according to some ai algorithm to try to so that the so that the upshot is that the only reason that you don't have even more insane congestion on the roads of worcester today is that it's expensive to have congestion that if congestion gets cheaper then you're going to have more congestion you're going to get closer to having 100% capacity on the roads. Possible, but I also, I also think that there's a, a better chance with any sort of automated uh, transportation systems that if the systems themselves are interlinked, which they would kind of have to yeah. be, things are actually going to flow smoothly, which is 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 a big game changer in terms of um, the way traffic patterns function as is. But the other side of that as well, too, 
I mean, always I've been fascinated for years by the idea of, of autonomous vehicles, right? I mean, especially when it comes to uh, long haul, uh, long haul trucking, right? Because I mean, that seems to be like really we're closer to that it seems than anything else. The, you know, the the, the large uh, multi-container, 18-wheeler type setups that are on the highways from coast to coast. But we rarely go too deep into like the impact that has, like you just framed, right? Like if the, all the cost is is in the driver. Uh, that also means that's where the economy lives as well too. So like you might uh, streamline a uh, transportation system, you might make a, s a transportation system more efficient, but you're also eliminating tens of thousands of jobs that are attached yes. to that yes. system. And part of why I think we often see just a grinding of wheels, right? That we're we're just constantly talking about we're literally you and I and and government and and policymakers and think tanks talking about the same systems over and over again. And how are we ever going to fix this? It is a combination of like they, they are antiquated systems, uh, but the bigger one is we kind of can't fix them because if we do, it almost because of technology, it automatically means that we have to change our entire scope of our understanding of economy of scale. Yeah, um, and, yeah. you know, ba universal basic income it ain't on the ballot this year, Mike. It's like we're not ready to talk about that one yet. Neither our socialist nor our libertarian <laughs> utopia are going to happen this quarter, so we have to look at other solutions. Um, but are they really solutions, though? Because I don't know. If, that's the, if that's the goal, to go towards uh, more autonomous vehicles, how do you get there without c a complete disruption? I mean, last time I looked in the, in the, the again, the, the higher level transportation se sector, the moving of goods across the country, yeah. it's like 30,000 jobs. Yeah. Like, how do you eliminate 30,000 jobs from the workforce yeah. overnight without, even if the system functions that much better, uh, without the entire economy just falling apart? There's been a lot of, you know, I, I definitely have seen people talking about this and saying, well, we're not going to lose jobs because, like, the last mile is hard. Like, like getting that truck into the bay behind the Walmart or whatever is hard. So, like, the truck will drive itself on the interstate and then pull off near Walmart, and then a person will get in and drive it to Walmart and pack it in the bay. And I'm just like, come on, dude. That's not going to happen. The robot's going to do a good job parking the car behind the truck behind Walmart, just like a person. It's no miracle. Right. You know, I mean, it's like a skilled job, but if you can teach a robot to drive on the interstate, you can teach a robot to drive in a parking lot. And that probably sounds silly to a lot of people to hear that sort of conversation, but the reality is that these are just engineering problems, right? They're not they're not they're not philosophical problems, they're not big government problems. They're just engineering problems. And right now there's some teenage kid over at WPI who's figuring out finding the solution to that problem for us so we don't have to. And in the same way that one day you looked at the World Wide Web and said, oh, my God, like this can't exist. Like if this exists, I'm in the wrong reality. As soon as that solution appears, we're all going to have the same uh, – we're going to be forced with the same sort of new reality as well. I want to I say that this actually makes me clarify why I'm in – why I support the general theory of like some kind of Uber bus – uh, rather than the regular bus, you know, some sort of s series of small buses that are operating, you know, according to some algorithm to try mm -hmm. to do a good job picking up transit passengers from many more stops in a more, you know, confusing way. Um, and it's probably partially because I'm a nerd and I'm just fascinated by these ideas. But I think that it's mostly because I don't see the current bus system doing a good job for poor people mm -hmm. much even any longer than it is because you're right like we have a system where the middle class increasingly doesn't want to ride the bus where you have fewer people who are poor enough to want to ride a bus to ride the bus and so the people who remain poor enough to want to ride the bus are not enough to have the political they don't have the political clout to keep funding the bus. Mm -hmm. I mean, if every middle-class person in Worcester was riding the bus, the governor wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to cut your bus funding and make you have to cut bus routes. He would never do that. He would right. be like, oh, this is a core service of democracy, the bus, right? But, like, as it becomes increasingly not like that, like, p politicians are going to increasingly not fund the bus. So some sort of crazy Uber system to me seems preferable to, like, a death spiral of the current system. It's not going to – I don't see, wouldn't see the current system going away, but I would see you having a third as many routes running the same frequency mm -hmm. and it just being, like, more and more terrible year after year as you're cutting budget year after year. And if you're just some poor person or a person who has limited mobility, you're not going to – it's going to be – it's like the dude who was holding a sign outside the WRTA. I saw a couple uh, – um, uh, a couple months ago where he was like, you know, like, I will not be, uh, you know, I will not be forced to live on this reservation. Is that, what the heck did that sign say? I need to look up this dude's sign. Something about this. Like, he was just basically like, I feel like I'm going to, if you cut the bus service, I'm going to be like trapped in mm -hmm. my housing project. And I will not, I will not allow you to do that to me. So I feel like this, the reason we talk about this futuristic stuff is not because we're like, oh, we want like, 
you know, like college kids or like yuppies to have a more fun night out on a Saturday night because right. I can get trashed. It's because I'm like, I want there to be a bus that is affordable to people who don't have any money. And I feel like that's the more reason. Honestly, even though it's a crazy and futuristic yeah. and made up solution, I think it's more reasonable than expecting that we're going to fix the WRTA the way it is. And, and Uber has shown pretty uh, significant usage with their ride sharing programs as well, too. You know, like when you're in uh, peak hours uh, and you're in a bigger city, I mean, the opportunity to actually split a fare uh, with, with a stranger. We've done that multiple times out in Boston. It works great, and it's really no different than what we used to. Uh, the city used to complain about all the time with um, delivery systems that we had. Like we've got no idea what's going on. We have no idea who's getting in these these cars, where they're taking people. Right, we can't do that. How dare you drive someone across the city the city for money if you're not following whatever? Weird... I mean, that's actually probably a genius idea for Uber at some point in time, especially in big cities, to start having shuttle shuttle vans. And maybe not like something the full size of a city bus, but a ten seat like sh- like a sprinter it's something. van. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing and Lyft both have been piloting here and there and it just hasn't taken off like wildfire which makes me feel like is this political reasons? Do yeah. people be, I mean, do people hate the shared Uber too actually kind of like they hate the bus so that there's no market for the shared Uber? I don't know. Yeah. Um, we probably should go to another commercial break. This has been 508 Worcester's Libertarian Voice. We'll be back in a few minutes with more. Yeah, the... Um, <coughs> I've never seen any of their, um, their demos of, of the the bus idea but that it seems like it would be pretty especially you know in commuting hours and whatnot that you know we're not necessarily going to tell you when you're going to get to your destination yeah. but we're going to get you there in a totally reasonable amount of time and still less time than the city bus is going to take i mean that's what you know the majority and maybe it's not the majority at this point but it's it's gotten a lot of use for the last couple decades but services like knights and worcester airport limousine they pretty much function on the same model you can rent a town car, you, you know, you can rent a, a limo for your family, uh, whatnot, or you can spend half as much and take a ride with eight strangers to Logan in a shuttle bus. And it's, yeah. I think the reality for most people is it's four o'clock in the morning. We're, let's just all accept we're going to be miserable together. We get in this bus, it's going to smell funny, but then we're going to be on vacation. Have you ridden Uber to Logan? What's up? Have you ridden Uber to Logan? Iris has a couple times. Yeah. I never have. It's like the same parking. Yeah, it's not different. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like an absurd when someone tells you it's seventy five bucks, you know, whatever, it seems like it's a lot. But when you look at the comparisons, it's really not. There's it's, no I mean, there's nobody's gonna drive you to Logan cheaper. Yeah. I mean maybe they are, but you know, take it, take it if you do. Are we ready are we ready to come back or we got a little more? Uh, yeah, we'll do 30 seconds. We'll do 30 seconds, okay. We're going to talk about the four problems of urban transportation, because Brendan dismissed this last week, and so everybody's been in suspense for a week about what these four problems could be, and the four be separate solutions. of anything you have to offer, Mike. Hi, everybody. You know, Brendan, one time I said to Bruce, one time Bruce Russell said to me, I just wrote a song about this thing I saw in Matlock. And I said to Bruce, Bruce, there aren't a lot of death metal songs about Matlock. And Bruce said, that's because there aren't a lot of death metal songs about life. This is 508, Worcester's Transit Advocacy Voice. Today we have Brendan Malkin on the show and me, Mike Benedetti, and a bunch of papers I printed out of my house. Most of these articles, most of the articles that I'm reading are from the TNG, Telegram and Gazette. This this report, again, was from Mass Inc. I want to read a part of a thing, which is an article from uh, Jeff McMahon back in March on Forbes.com called The Four Problems of Urban Transportation and the Four Separate Solutions. Uh, and this is, I guess, from him, Jeff McMahon, going to a talk and writing up his notes. He says, there are four main problems in urban transportation that require four separate solutions, transit guru Jarrett Walker said in Chicago in March, urging people to be wary of tech companies that claim to solve more than one problem at a time. We have four separate problems of urban transportation, which have four separate kinds of solutions, he said, and it is very important to not mistake the solution for one problem for the solution for a different problem. Here's the four, four problems. Number one is communications. He says... That has been a fantastic transformation. Some of you may not be old enough to remember what life was like without real-time information when you just went right out into the snow and wondered when the bus was coming. Problem two, emissions and energy efficiency. He says, quote, for which we're currently working on electric vehicles, and that's fantastic. Three is labor and safety. 
The cost of labor is the primary driver of operation costs for passenger transport, Walker said. Quote, it's why your bus doesn't come more often, and it is also why Uber can't make money, unquote. Autonomous vehicles will address that and the accident rate. Quote, there is a problem with the efficient use of labor and also a colossal problem of safety, for which we're talking about autonomous vehicles, and that's fantastic. Number four is space. Quote, and there's a fourth problem, which is the efficient use of space, for which the solution is on the one hand cycling and walking, and on the other, public transportation provided by big vehicles. So I feel like, I mean, I feel kind of like uh, like the cost of the train is something that he doesn't talk about here. But he does talk about space. This this get, this is this is a question for me about um, autonomous vehicles or about transit in general. Of just like Worcester's a hard city to get around. Worcester has congested roads. It's a hard city to bike around. A hard city to walk mm-hmm. around. Like to what extent are any of these problems going to solve? Any of these problems, and I, I any still, of these solutions going to solve any of these problems? Other than the fact that we've got some landscape issues, hills, you know, uh, oh yeah, the uh, that that present challenges for walking and, and cycling and whatnot. I really don't think Worcester is that hard of a city to get around. I mean, it's it's definitely New England uh, or Northeast because it's old and it you know windy roads and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. But I think the 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 thing that has made Worcester difficult to traverse at times. Um, when we have done major road, road work project, uh, projects like Shrewsbury Street, uh, Gold Star Boulevard, um, there are certain parts of Major Taylor Boulevard and whatnot. It's like cutting. It's like we thought there was a good idea to cut a superhighway down the middle of of the city, um, but yeah. just at ground level. What you end up with at, at, when you do that, from I think a, a walker's perspective, it seems like you're traveling longer distances than you actually are. Because it's just terrible to walk along it. I think. That, I mean, I, right. I think the Major Taylor Boulevard thing near the train station, I feel like, is actually a big piece of the uh, walkability problem, which is that like, if you're somebody who walks all the time, you cross that street and it's not fun, but you say whatever. But if mm-hmm. you're somebody who doesn't walk a lot of the time, you feel like you're cross, you are crossing a super highway, right. and you're not. And there's lights, and there's a crosswalk, and there's the whole thing. But it feels like a big chore to cross that street. It's such a gi- bizarrely giant street in the middle of an area which is not. Most of the streets are much smaller. And it shouldn't feel what if you're walking from whether it be nightlife or just a, 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 a part of your your normal day, walking from Green Island to you know the city hall area shouldn't seem like a chore. I mean right. that's a very short distance. But to if be you, especially walking. if you don't do it, all the signals are telling you don't go this way. So this the, way is going to be all concrete. The space side of things, especially when it comes to you know Worcester's avi- ability to be traversed, I'm not going to argue that it, it can be confusing for newcomers. But what isn't um, the it, it is, I think, some of the poor decisions we've made about frontage and streetscape that we seem to be getting right now. I mean, it seems that that's kind of the goal, whole goal of uh, redoing Main Street is to set a new sort of standard and platform for how we're going to, and our complete streets program going forward right. uh, is going to emulate that, right? That, y- you know, your frontage isn't going to be so deep that it gives the impression that you want cars there more than pre- pedestrians. Uh, you're, we're going to ensure that there are bike lanes. If they're not protected, they'll at least be marked uh, that work in concert with the sidewalks and, and traffic. All of the things that I think give a sense of actual uh, movement uh, and not feeling that you're just lost out in the wilderness. Are we, are we done with the show, Hank Saltz? We have one minute left. Well, everybody, thanks for thanks for watching or listening to the show today. Thanks for sending all your emails. You can email us at pieandcoffee at gmail dot com. I don't know. I feel hopeful about these. I feel hopeful about this stuff. Well, you're kind of a hopeful guy. Mike. I think it's because I grew up in the '80s, and because in the '80s, you know, we like the Cold War. It went okay. All these kinds of problems. We've AIDS, we finally talked about that out. before, but I think there's something magical that happens when you grow up still listening the to the air raid sirens uh, as a kid. And like, if, you, if your first memories as a child, uh, air raid sirens, yeah. and then like they just stop one day, like you're kind of, it leaves a mark. Yeah, things can get better, Mike. Things can get better. That's the that's the message of the 1980s. This has been 508, a show about Worcester. We'll talk to everybody next week. Bye-bye. Have a good one.